Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for StreetFins. We're here to break down the world of finance for you to understand from a relatable perspective with discussions with experts. This is episode 14, and today I have Alex Patel as co-host with me to do part two of Simplifying the U.S. Treasury with Sarah Bloom Raskin as our guest. So Alex, the quarter has officially ended for you. What are your plans for winter break? Well, we can't travel anywhere, so I'm planning to continue working on street fence and preparing for classes next quarter. Love to hear that. We're definitely going to be working hard, recording more episodes, and having more guests. Yep, we can't really do anything else. So Alex, this is part two of our conversation with former Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, Sarah Bloom Raskin. What did we talk about in part one? So in part one, we got to learn about Sarah and her career in policymaking. We then talked about the basic functions of the Treasury, such as its role in collecting taxes, printing money, and general fiscal policy. We differentiated between the Fed and the Treasury, and we learned about the role that the U.S. Treasury plays domestically and internationally with investors. We'll be getting into how the Treasury acts in crises, Sarah's own experience at the Treasury, and much more in this part. So, let's continue simplifying the U.S. Treasury. From the minds of the students at StreetFins, this is Finance Simplified the podcast that simplifies the seemingly complex and confusing world of money. I'm your host, Rohan Gupta. So we started this conversation off with you telling us that you really got pulled into this economic side of government through the financial crisis. And I'm interested in learning more about what is the Treasury Department's role in a financial crisis and maybe you can talk a little bit about 2008 and TARP and all of these different things. What does the Treasury do when America has an economic crisis? Great question. Yes. So what Treasury's role is, is to really stay ahead of risks that are on the horizon. So this is the one part in the universe <laughs> where people are coming together to think about what could come down the pike that could hurt economic prosperity in our country. What kind of situation, what kind of configuration of events might transpire that could create a threat to the economic well-being? of the U.S. government and the U.S. people. So I think of Treasury as being one of the places where that kind of thought occurs, where people come together to try to get a jump on new emerging risks. Now, before the financial crisis, many would argue that, and many have argued, that Treasury and different parts of the U.S. government were asleep at the switch, that things were happening in markets, in housing, that were actually creating risk and that nobody was staying ahead of it, that it wasn't being looked at carefully enough. And that's a whole separate debate as to the extent to which that's true. But I think one big lesson that came out of the financial crisis was that the U.S., regulatory structure needed to be stronger than it was, that activities were happening that were highly corrosive to people's economic well-being. There was a sense that financial derivative instruments were out of control, were not very well understood, were being valued in a way that was unhinged from economic 
reality, that people were buying houses with mortgages with terms that were very hard to understand. And then they were getting caught up in these terms when economic conditions changed and losing their homes. And there was predatory behaviors that were occurring where people of a particular race were being steered into higher cost mortgages than other people. So a lot of allegations of racism that was embedded in mortgage broker activity. So there was really a lot going on here. And many argued that these factors contributed to what became the financial financial crisis, and that the federal government needed to do better, that this was in part a failure of government oversight. And so one of the lessons that came from the financial crisis was a need to create structural reform. And as you might know, there was a massive piece of reform done, maybe a thousand pages worth of reform that did things like created a new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and created oversight mechanisms for regulators across the federal government to come together more regularly and in a more disciplined way to talk about emerging risk. Centers for data collection that needed to be proactive were were legislated. So Congress put in place, and this was through the Dodd-Frank Act, put in place a massive and comprehensive set of reforms that would, in essence, keep a financial-like crisis from occurring. And the reforms, we could spend a whole hour just talking about what those reforms looked like. There were a lot of rules, regulatory rules that were changed. There were a lot of exercises, things like stress testing and global exercises with international counterparts. All of these things that we now take for granted in the country were put in place as a result of the financial crisis and had not existed in much of a rigorous way before. So so I think that, you know, a long way of answering your question, Alex, is that is that the Treasury Department is the hub, really, for, for asking the kinds of questions that keep an economy and keep the participants in the economy ahead of risk. Now, when I was at Treasury, which was after the financial crisis, I started thinking about what a, another risk might be. And the risk I was thinking about at the time, which, by the way, I think is still a real risk, is the risk of a cybersecurity attack being launched in the financial sector of the U.S. in such a way that that would become highly destabilizing and could lead to a dramatic downturn. So the exercise of being at Treasury is to think through what some of these risks on the horizon might look like and how they transmit through an economy. There's tons of risk, by the way, that you know we can look at and say, okay, that's a risk, but it's not really a risk of financial stability. It's not going to bring about a recession. And we have to have those conversations. We have to talk about that. Here's We're living in a risk right now, the risk of a pandemic, right? So, you know, what does it mean for a pandemic to hit an economy and, and have an effect on the economy? And how 
can an economy prepare for that kind of risk? Another one I'm thinking about right now is climate change, right? What does a transition to a warmer climate mean for financial stability? So these are the kinds of questions that people who are interested in public policy of a financial nature are asking. And the Treasury Department and the different parts of it are a good home for people who are asking these questions and want to create some kind of preparedness for going forward. We're talking about the risks that, and we're currently facing one of those risks with the pandemic. I was hoping to dig deeper on this crisis right now and sort of what the Treasury is doing right now. Could you go into what the CARES Act is and talk about the stimulus checks and what the thinking behind those is? Sure. The pandemic effect is a risk that essentially is a risk of a public health significance, right? It it didn't originate in the economy. And yet, one of the big effects of the response to the pandemic was a need for social distancing and a need for people who normally would be going to offices and places to work, needed to stay home. The immediate contraction that the economy felt in March when it was clear that we were in a pandemic and that that pandemic was not being contained through other means, there was no cure for it, there was no vaccine, there was no testing, there was no contact tracing, there was no real public health response, the economy ended up taking one of the brunts. The real brunt of it is the life and death significance of what has happened. The economy, though, came to a halt, a dramatic halt, and immediately firms which were not bringing in any kind of revenue, started laying people off. And people were required to stay home, except for frontline workers and people who were helping on the health side of the crisis. So the economy moved into a dramatic tailspin from which it hasn't completely recovered. So you might know that one of the guiding philosophies of the CARES Act was let's try to minimize the impact on the economy by keeping businesses from having to fire or lay off workers. So the idea here is that if workers could continue to get paid and get some kind of payment in their pockets, they would continue to be able to make ends meet at home. They could essentially continue to spend, but they could pay their rent or they can pay their mortgage or they could pay, you know, pay for their to get food on the table. They could pay their utility bills, but they needed money to do that. And if firms laid them off, that would not happen. So part of the philosophy, both on the primary, well, I should say primarily on the fiscal side was to get money out quickly and to get it to small businesses in such a way that they would feel incentivized to hold on to employees, that they wouldn't immediately fire people. Now, you might recall there was a program, there still is, you know, known as PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. And the idea there was that the Small Business Administration would give money to a firm and it would be a loan at a very 
favorable interest rate, and that that loan would actually become a grant. It would become free money that didn't have to get paid back if the business held on to a certain percentage of its employees in a certain time period. So there was an explicit tying of financial assistance to holding on to workers. And that was the attempt to, that was the, I think, the guiding philosophy. Mixed success. It took a long time for that PPP money to get out the door. So a lot of firms really couldn't wait. They had to lay off people right away in order to pay their own bills. And so it was of mixed success. There's a whole a whole show <laughs> based just on whether that's a good program or not a good program. You know, there was also a direct cash payment that Treasury made to individuals who made below a certain amount of income. And that was also the idea there being, let's keep people afloat financially for a while so that they can meet their basic needs while they are not bringing in a paycheck. The unemployment insurance system was an attempt to enhance it so that it could help more people, people who were now part of a gig economy, people who work as independent contractors and don't have benefits, people whose hours were cut back. They might not have been laid off, but they were. They had their hours reduced. So the CARES Act had different components, both a fiscal component and a monetary policy component, because it permitted the Fed to trigger what is known as its emergency lending authority. 13.3 is the buzz word because it's section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act. But this is the part of the Federal Reserve Act that lets the Fed step in when there's an emergency. And this is an emergency and the Fed wanted to have that authority so that it could essentially turn on all the spigots of possible relief. And that is what it did through the authority that it was given through the CARES Act and piggybacking off of the Federal Reserve Act. So the pandemic's response economically has been extraordinary from the perspective of putting a lot of money out. You you might know that here we are, the day we're talking is, you know, a day before some of this fiscal support of Americans is about to end because when the CARES Act was passed, some of the provisions of payment were going to expire on July 31st. So Congress is in the midst of trying to figure out what comes next. The House of Representatives a couple months ago actually prepared for this eventuality by passing a bill, but the Senate has not yet. They are working against the clock, trying to beat the clock to meet this July 31st deadline, because of course, at that point, a lot of assistance to individuals goes away. And when it goes away, there can be dramatic effects on the economic well-being of families and households and communities and businesses. And it's going to be a big drop-off if this isn't addressed. So that essentially has been the beginning of the economic response to the pandemic, but we're living in it right now. And it is ongoing. And by many calculations, the economy has not bounced back to where it was before. And it's going to require um, significant structural long-term work to figure out how the economic damage in light of the pandemic gets addressed. I do actually want to shift the conversation towards your personal experience under the Obama administration. And, And I'm interested in learning more about 
you know, what did you do during your time as Deputy Secretary of the Treasury from, I think it was 2014 to 2017? And what were some of the economic issues you focused on? I was very fortunate to be able to serve as Deputy Secretary of the Treasury from 2014 to 2017. Those were quite challenging years. And the Deputy Secretary role is a role that is the number two person at Treasury. So this is the person who I kind of think of it as an orchestra, right? Where deep benches of expertise, a lot of significant talent, very impressive people coming together, doing different parts of the mission that Treasury is focused on. And the deputy secretary is one way you can think of that role as kind of the conductor, right? The person who makes sure that everybody is kind of rowing in the same direction, singing the same tune, working together. So we're really simplifying quite a bit because under the deputy secretary are very deep benches of expertise with a lot of strong, talented, exceptional people who are devoted to to a public mission. So you have, for example, an undersecretary of domestic finance. You have an undersecretary of international affairs. You have an undersecretary of terrorism and financial intelligence. And so each of those undersecretaries have big areas of responsibility and different specialties within them. So the operation is very sophisticated and it's a very talented group of people. Now, in terms of my experience there, it's all dependent, I think, in kind of in the times you live in. And my concerns were that we wanted always to be prepared for the next set of risks, right? I was there at the tail end, you know, the financial crisis had happened, it was over, and we were in the process of implementing the structural reforms that Congress had put in place by virtue of the Dodd-Frank Act. And there were many reforms that needed implementation. And as I said before, Treasury is an executive branch agency, so it implements the law. And here there was a major statute in the form of the Dodd-Frank Act that needed to be implemented. And so one of my focus areas was to make sure that Dodd-Frank was implemented the way Congress had intended it to be. And, you know, Dodd-Frank was about a thousand pages <laughs> of statute. It was a massive undertaking. So the work that had to be done was really of a very large nature, and it took many years, actually, to implement. My concern was at the time and to this day is that you know you want you want somebody in the economic policy making world to be alert for what kind of risks to financial stability and to the economy can be coming down the pipe so having gone through the financial crisis which was the first financial crisis really since the great depression a lot of people had lived their lives and had their careers without having seen a downturn well that was one of the first big downturns that had happened and the biggest ones since the Great Depression. And so I was very focused on how you prepare an economy and a society for the next downturn. And while it, you know, downturns can come from any kind of shocks to the economy, they can come from something internal, they can come from something external, they can come from your country, outside your country, there are a whole host, they can come from pandemics, they can come from cyber attacks. We now see and understand that they can come from any source. And my focus was to think about, well, what would happen if we were shocked again? 
how strong would our economy be? Would it be able to bounce back quickly or would it linger and not recover quickly? So I was very focused on thinking about how what are considered tail risks, you know, maybe risks of, you know, not a high probability, but a big impact, how those risks could be handled ahead of time, how we could build defensiveness ahead of time. So the work that I engaged in from 2014 to 2017 had to do with One example of this is the risk of a cyber attack. Could a cyber attack destabilize the financial system, the financial sector, and could that spill over into our economy? And what were the dimensions of how a cyber attack could upend our economy? And what I did in those years was to bring together both people in the private sector and in government to think about how this might look and to get ahead of it. And to build defensiveness within the financial sector so that if there were some kind of attack, and we know, by the way, that there are attacks all the time, every day, (laughs) major and minor, but a lot of attacks occur, what can the financial sector do to prepare itself for those attacks so that they don't end up being destabilizing and bringing down not just firms, but the entire economy. So I was very focused on looking at cyber security and thinking about it first from the perspective of the U.S. And we had to bring together all the heads of the U.S. regulatory, economic regulatory apparatus. We had to connect it to law enforcement and the intelligence agencies and convene really a series of meetings so that the U.S. knew what it was doing. We have a complex set of different actors, really, in the U.S., economic agencies and and intelligence agencies, enforcement agencies, law enforcement, and how do we bring them together to understand something that could occur, like a major cyber attack? So we started doing that, and we brought that together with the private sector, with banks and insurance companies and hedge funds and asset managers and you name it, any kind of financial firm, we wanted to bring them into these conversations. And then it occurred to me after we were doing all this heavy work in the U.S., wait a minute, you know, the internet doesn't just end at our borders. The internet traverses the world. Shouldn't we be having these conversations with other countries? And so we began conversations with what's known as the G7, you know, which are seven of the major powers in our world and talking to my counterparts in those countries and trying to understand how they approach cybersecurity. Because of course, a threat can emanate from anywhere. And wouldn't we all be stronger if we essentially locked hands and talked about how you collectively build a stronger defensive structure. So we moved from the domestic to the international. And, you know, this became a real important model for how you go about thinking through preparedness. How do you prepare for a risk? And so it turned out to be extraordinary. It launched all kinds of work, academic studies and policy papers and think tanks. And so there's been quite a bit of work done there that I think is really important. You know, now you see Another kind of set of preparedness that has to occur around climate change, right? Because climate is a risk that has the ability to destabilize the financial sector and our economy. And what does that look like? And how do you prepare the financial sector to be able to withstand the 
transitions that are occurring to a cleaner set of standards and protocols, right? What is the value of carbon, for example? How should institutions lend to firms that have heavy amounts of carbon in their portfolios? So this idea of preparing for risk is something that Treasury is really uniquely poised to be able to think about and launch. And I think climate risk is one of these risks. Some would say we're in it now. Others would say we have yet to even see more of how it gets manifested. But there needs to be some thought given. There needs to be leadership on how economic policymakers are going to prepare the financial sector and our society for these new kinds of risks. Now back to the conversation. You answered a lot of different things about not only what you did at the secretary, but also what the future thinking and risk management will be in terms of thinking about you know, things like cybersecurity, climate change, or more traditional financial destabilization kind of emanating from financial markets as well, not some sort of external thing. But all that is just, it's very fascinating for me too, because it seems like the real task of all leaders, whether that's in government, whether that's in the financial industry or anything, the real task of leaders is to manage all these risks. Now, I want to ask you my final question that I ask all my guests. So my final question is, so now that you've had all this experience ranging from your time as the deputy secretary to your time as you know part of the Federal Reserve, to even before that when you mentioned you were part of the banking industry, what sort of lessons about economics and the world of money have you passed on to your children or your students? And what do you recommend for students today? Oh, well, it's a great question. And, you know, the ability to be able to share some of these extraordinary experiences with the next generation is not just something that's fun, but it's actually necessary. Because when I think about what your generation and my kids' generation is what they're going to inherit in terms of challenges, I mean, we've only touched the surface. We've talked about climate, we've talked about cyber, but we also have big challenges regarding income inequality, wealth inequality. We have a whole set of questions regarding sustainability. Oh, we have student loan debt. My goodness, we haven't talked about student loan debt. And sort of how do we assure, you know, equal opportunity in our country? So there's a lot here that the next generation needs to take on. And these are going to be the challenges of your day and the challenges of my children's day. And I mean, so what I tend to do is, you know, first of all, in my home and my kids, I mean, we talk about these things all the time. There's a funny story, you know, during the financial crisis when I was banking commissioner in Maryland, and I had found out that I was going to be nominated as a Federal Reserve governor. And some press people actually came to my front door to my house. And I wasn't home because I was at work at the time (laughs) in Baltimore. But my son, who was then in seventh grade, you know, now he's 25. But at the time, he was about 13. And, you know, we had been talking about the financial crisis and how people were losing their homes and why people were losing their homes and what you would do if we were losing our home. And, and then we talked about what the government was doing. And anyway, it was very interesting because he felt he had a lot to say to these reporters who came to my house <laughs> when I wasn't home. And I think a lot of reporters would maybe just wait for me to come home, but they rang the doorbell and Tommy Raskin answered the door. And, you know, they said, is your mother home? 
and he said no. And, you know, but she's coming back. She's working on the financial crisis, I think he said. And they said, well, can we, you know, what do you think about the financial crisis? And they started talking to him about it. And (laughs) he had some very interesting views, talked about these things, anything that you know, affects the family is stuff you talk about and things having to do with hap- what happens at work and what's happening to how you're paying, how your family is paying the bills and people in school were starting to, Tommy was saying, and my other kids were saying they were worried. Were their parents going to lose their jobs or were they going to have to move out of their houses and where were they going to live? And so the economic issues become really everybody's issues. And so my kids grew up very much attuned to that. And I think a lot of kids did. And I don't think we have particular answers, but I always wanted my children to bear witness really to what is happening economically, to look for signals and to look for signs in everything they do about how people are dealing with this economy. And as for my students, I I mean, I love being able to hear from students about what they are seeing and how they fit what they're seeing into the structures of our different institutions. And, you know, people of your age have remarkable critical skills, both to connect the different areas that you have focused on in your lives with what you see around you and what your families are experiencing in your communities. And so I think that there is a wonderful sharing of perspectives and you learn so much when you have these great conversations with people. And what I also love about teaching, of course, is that you bring together more than just people with one set of lenses, you know, people come in with, you know, I'm teaching at a law school. So people have come in with different majors. They have had different methodologies in terms of how they think about the world. Some are economists, some are anthropologists, some are mathematicians, some are political science people, and they all bring these perspectives together. I just love that because I think it's when you bring those perspectives together that you really start to create new insight And this is how we move things in a better direction is by bringing all these diverse perspectives into the course of a conversation. And so everything I do in my teaching is to really try to provoke those kinds of discussions where people can have new insights and aha moments and they can see things. They can understand both things they're seeing and they can maybe understand things that they don't see. And I think that's also a really important part of how we move forward and then create, sort of create conditions where we can be really more observant and more resilient, more alive to opportunity and possibility, a sense of betterment, both for ourselves and our families, our communities, and in my case, our country. So it's it's a great question. I love that question. And it's a really important moment now, I think, where people are bearing witness in a very personal way to hardship and to vulnerability. I think vulnerability is not an abstraction anymore. It's something that is very close to us as we go through these hard days. And that, I think, to the extent we can focus on all these fault lines that have been exposed from the pandemic, you know, income and wealth inequality and climate ill preparedness and all of these things. You know, I think 
it's great that we actually have an opportunity to bring our perspectives together and to think about how we create a stronger, more lasting, more sustainable, fairer, more equitable place for us to live collectively. So anyway, I will stop there, but essentially say to continue to bear witness, watch what's happening around you, connect what's happening around you with some of your biases or understandings of things. Always test your inclinations. Try to think beyond, try to push your understanding of things beyond how you usually think about them. And then I think you'll get a real sense of enlightenment, a real sense that you know your views matter and that we can actually create an economy that is more just and that is prosperous and that is more sustainable and that is one that we all feel we have a part in and want to be part of. As I mentioned, that was our final question. And it's truly an honor to speak to someone who has had such a great experience and such a thorough experience with government and finance. And we hope to have you on again at some point in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, everyone. That was the end of part two of our two-part interview with Sarah Bloom Raskin on simplifying the U.S. Treasury. We hope you enjoyed and learned more about the U.S. Treasury from her. The entire conversation was incredible. Alex, what were some of the key takeaways from the second part? I think we got to explore a deeper side of the Treasury. We explored what the Treasury's role is more generally and more in relation to financial markets in part one. But in this episode, we learned more about how the Treasury is really all about managing risks like crises. I think it's important to know how the Treasury has acted historically during crises as well, since it also gives insight into how the Treasury is handling the current one. The Treasury used a lot of tactics during the financial crisis, but always with the focus on how the tools could be used in the future. What the Treasury did during the financial crisis is similar to what they're doing now with the CARES Act, but they have some fine distinctions due to the nature of the current crisis as opposed to the financial crisis. Yeah, I also found her actual experience of the Treasury fascinating. Her analogy to how she considers the treasury and orchestra was quite helpful. And as essentially the second in command, she had the ability to drive decisions and push for thinking about a whole range of potential risks and ideas. Agreed. Well, Alex, that wraps up our part two conversation and takeaways. This episode also marks the final episode of 2020. We plan on returning in February of 2021, though we may release a short update before then. Thanks to all the listeners who tuned in to our episodes this year and last. We truly appreciate all of you. In 2021, expect to have more incredible episodes that simplify how the world of money works because we have an incredible slate of guests lined up. Alex, happy holidays and see you in 2021. See you in 2021 and have a happy holiday season. Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. If you like this episode and others, let us know by subscribing and giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts and following us on Spotify. Share us with your friends and check us out on Instagram and Twitter, both at StreetFins. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rohan Invest. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email fspodcast at streetfins.com. Thanks once again to Sarah Bloom Raskin for her insights today. I hope you understand the topic of the U.S. Treasury in a more simplified way. You can check her out on Twitter at sbloomraskin. Once again, we're really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content. Join the Streetfins community and tell your friends about us so that they can learn about finance too. 
We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.